It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 206 for August 22nd, 2010. Recorded August 20th. Do you have more than one Gmail account? A lot of people do. Maybe one is used for personal messages, the other for business messages. One of mine is a standalone account. The other is a mirror of all mail sent to my personal accounts. If you have more than one account, you know that you can't have both accounts open in the same browser at the same time. There's a problem with that, though. It's no longer correct. Setting up a second or third account in the same browser is easy, and this week I'll tell you how. To use this feature, you need to locate some obscure settings and agree that you understand the implications of making the changes. Start by clicking Settings, then choose the Accounts and Import tab. Now scroll all the way to the bottom of the page, and you'll find Google Account Settings. Click that. You should now see a multiple sign-in option. The feature will be shown as Off. Select the Edit option. On the next screen, you enable the option and explicitly state that you do understand what will happen as a result of the change. Be sure that you do understand that some features you used previously may no longer be available. Once you've enabled multiple accounts, you may need to sign out of the account and sign back in to see the change. I just refreshed the page. Once you do that, you'll have a drop-down arrow to the right of your account name at the top of the screen. Just click this to change accounts. That's not everything that's new either. You'll find some subtle changes. Selecting groups of messages, for example, all, none, read, unread, starred, or unstarred, no longer takes up space in the margin. Now these choices are in a drop-down list. It made space for mail contacts and tasks at the top of the left column. And Compose Mail is now a more visible button instead of a text link. If you look very carefully, you'll see that the header is 16 pixels shorter. That doesn't really make a lot of difference on a high-res screen. Google has also updated the Contacts section and added some requested features. For example, Contacts works a lot more like Mail now, and keyboard shortcuts work in Contacts. You can now sort Contacts by last name. If you want to change the labels for phone numbers or other fields, you can. Undo is available, too, so that if you make an incorrect change, you can quickly revert to the previous version. Edit and view modes no longer exist. When you make a change, Gmail automatically saves the change. One of the more interesting sections of Gmail and other Google applications is the Labs area. As Google describes it, and I quote, Gmail Labs is a testing ground for experimental features that aren't quite ready for prime time. They may change, break, or disappear at any time. I like to pop into the lab every now and then and take a look around, and I found a few interesting tidbits on the lab's shelves. Canned responses. This is for people who routinely need to send the same message to people. Write the message once and send it with just a few keystrokes. You can even have a Gmail filter send one of these messages. Custom date formats. I happen to like 24-hour clocks. There's no ambiguity about the time when it's stated that way and it takes less space than the 12-hour format with an AM or PM added at the end. Inserting images. Sometimes I like to include an image in a message, and this hasn't always been as easy as it should be with Google. The inserting images function fixes that. Nested labels. I like this. 
If the basic single-level labels are insufficient for your needs, you can choose this option, and then you can add a hierarchy of labels. Some of the things you can find in Google Mail. You probably already know this, but heat is one of your computer's biggest enemies. But many computers have less cooling capacity than they really need. A question from Hawaii reminds me that it's not as easy as just opening the case and adding a fan. Here's the question. I feel much more at home with my new computer since I opened it up and looked inside. However, I was gobsmacked to see that there was no rear fan. There's a grill. There are holes for attaching a fan, but no fan. A friend suggested there might be a fan under the graphics card, which indeed there is. So no front vents, just a big grill on the side. Air comes in, is circulated by the graphics fan, and then goes out the grill in the rear. There are also CPU and power supply fans. So I'm thinking of attaching a fan to the rear, just to improve air circulation in this hot tropical climate. The case designers must have envisioned this possibility, as there are holes for attaching the fan, yet I'm wondering if I run the risk of messing up the air circulation in some unforeseen way by adding the fan. Well, you're right. GPUs generally do have fans now, particularly the more powerful graphics cards. As for adding a fan, first find out if you really need one. There's an application called SpeedFan that you can download and use for free. There's a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Run the application, but stay away from the panels that allow you to overclock things. See what the temperatures really are inside. And if they're pushing the high end of what's acceptable for the gear, adding a fan would be a good idea. Or if you have an Intel motherboard and CPU, you can take a look at Intel's desktop utilities. There's a link to that site from the TechBiter Worldwide website. No charge for the application. Well, more accurately, you paid for it when you bought the motherboard, so you might as well download it. One feature I like about this application is that you can run it in the tray, and it will alert you immediately if something starts operating out of spec. If you think you need a fan, you then need to determine whether the power supply can handle it. If the components in the PC require a 125-watt power supply, you can be fairly sure that the manufacturer didn't install a 250-watt power supply. You probably won't find a lot of headroom here. If there's enough power to add it, you might install a rear fan as an exhaust fan, then add some filtering materials to the grills to keep dust and cat fuzz from being ingested. My home computer came with a removable screen, and the interior stays a lot cleaner now. I was looking at the specifications for some new Seagate hard drives, the Momentous series, when I suddenly realized there was no rating for MTBF. That's mean time between failure. Some manufacturers have stated MTBF figures that seem fanciful at best. The fact is, though, that hard drives are a lot less likely to fail than they were in the past. That doesn't mean you can skip backup, but it does mean that your chance of suffering a catastrophic failure is a lot less than it was in the past. The average SATA drive has a mean time between failure of 600,000 hours or so, although Western Digital rates some of its drives at 1.4 million hours. The problem with MTBF is that it's essentially a theoretical lab analysis based on drives that are operated in laboratory environments. In other words, it's a guess. MTBF figures are used before a product is in production. Once the drives are in production, a better measure of failure is the annualized failure rate, that's the AFR, and that's the number Seagate cited. According to Seagate, the AFR for its momentous line of hybrid drives is 0.5%. That's an astonishingly low rate. 
one half of one percent of the drives will fail per year. If one can extrapolate from there, and I'm not sure you really can, 100% of the drives could be expected to fail within 200 years. I would expect failure much sooner than 2210 for a drive purchased this year. Something tells me, though, the AFR isn't really a straight line. As mechanical devices age, they are more likely to fail. But what if we consider just the next 10 years or so? Is there really a 95% chance that your hard drive will continue to function a decade from now? When the hard drive was invented back in 1954, it's unlikely that anyone foresaw a time when drives would be expected to run for 10 years or more. But they do, and they're becoming even more reliable in addition to becoming larger, faster, and less expensive. Even the drives in the Seagate Momentous series, which are considerably more expensive than non-hybrid drives, are reasonably priced. 500 gigabytes, $150. 320 gigabytes, $115. 250 gigabytes, just $100. Standard 1,000 gigabyte hard drives, that would be a terabyte, are selling for about $75.00 and 2,000-gigabyte drives for around $100. So you are paying something extra if you buy a Momentus drive. The Momentus series drives aren't solid-state drives, and they aren't standard drives. They are solid-state hybrid drives with what Seagate calls adaptive memory technology. You can watch a Seagate engineer explain the new technology. There's a link to the video from the TechBiter Worldwide website. The adaptive memory technology monitors your frequently used applications and data files, then places them into the solid-state portion of the drive so they can be quickly recalled. This makes sense for two reasons. First, you want the applications you need most often to be available as quickly as possible, so they're in the fastest possible location to get them. And second, the solid-state part of the drive can perform a limited number of write cycles. Granted, it's in the millions, but you do want to store here the components that change infrequently. Applications, for example. In short circuits, two words. Intel, antivirus. And, huh? Seems to be the most appropriate response to the news that Intel has purchased antivirus company McAfee for just under $8 billion. The goal is to build in more security to the hardware and shut out other software security vendors. Intel has shown itself to be a master at games like this. Intel CEO Paul Ottolini says the acquisition will, and I quote, better protect Internet users and their devices. My translation, Intel will try to force competing products out of the marketplace by tying antivirus operation to the hardware. Intel's stock price dropped after the announcement. McAfee's shares rose. Intel will be paying $48 per share for the company. That's more than one and a half times what the stock is selling for. McAfee is the number two player in the antivirus space with less than 20% of the market compared to leader Symantec with more than 35% of the market. Intel could be looking to increase its presence in markets other than those for notebook and desktop computers. The company already includes some security features in its CPUs, The McAfee acquisition gives the company access to specialists who understand threats. So watch for Intel to pursue non-computer growth. The company appears to be on a path to place hardware in the smartphone market and possibly in other consumer markets. Germans are concerned by Google's Street View feature. 
so concerned, in fact, that Google says they can opt out of having their residences shown. The requests would need to be made within four weeks, Google said. There was significant pushback from Germans, so Google increased the time to eight weeks. So what happens if you live on the 53rd floor of a high-rise apartment building and you don't want your residence building shown, but nobody else in the 75-story building cares? What happens if your home is on the north side of the street and somebody on the south side of the street objects? Google probably has this all figured out, but one can imagine a lot of really odd situations. Google plans to introduce Street View in Germany's 20 largest cities before the end of the year, according to Google Vice President for Northern and Central Europe, Philip Schindler. The cities would presumably be a kind of Schindler's list. All right, I'm sorry. Schindler said we are aware of the fact that Street View could lead to discussions in Germany. Although Street View is available in 23 countries, this is the first time that Google has made it possible for individuals to opt out. The online tool that Germans can use to opt out of the service went online August 16th. According to Information Week author Matthew Schwartz, up to 5 million domains parked by network solutions are actively serving threats. The article quotes employees of web application security vendor Armorize Technologies, which traced the malware to a widget that was being offered by Network Solutions. Network Solutions has removed the widget, but Armorize President Wayne Wang says the malicious software is part of the standard domain parking page of Network Solutions. This causes me to wonder how many law firms are already preparing class action lawsuits. The threat could affect between half a million and five million websites that are parked by Network Solutions. TechBiter Worldwide, by the way, is hosted at Bluehost in Orem, Utah. It is not associated in any way with Network Solutions. Information Week quotes Network Solutions Director of Public Relations Susan Wade as saying the widget link that appeared on the parked page master template has been removed. Therefore, the widget no longer appears on any Network Solutions parked page. Network Solutions disputed the number of affected websites, too, but also recommended that anyone who added the GrowSmart Business widget to a website should delete that widget and then scan the site for malware. A new digital SLR from Nikon, the D3100, is capable of shooting 1080p high-definition video. That, of course, is in addition to high-quality still digital images. The D3100 is a successor to last year's D3000. It has a 14.2-megapixel CMOS sensor. It is the first digital SLR that offers continuous autofocus during video recording, and the camera can also be used to record 720p video. Autofocus during video operation has been a problem for digital SLRs because the focus mechanism on the lens is usually too noisy for use while audio is being captured. Operating in 1080p mode, the camera can record video at 24 frames per second. At 720p, it can record either 24 or 30 frames per second. And for still photographers, get this, the new image processing allows an ISO range up to 12,800. This kind of speed allows for use in extremely low-light conditions without flash. The D3100 will be available in mid-September. Price will be around $700. It'll come with an FS Nikkor 18-55mm f3.5-5.6 VR kit lens. That lens choice, by the way, is one reason that Nikon has managed to keep the price down. In other words, it's 
Not the most impressive lens I've ever seen. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.